The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Well, I have a real treat for you today. You know, I've been saying that a lot lately. I think I've been having guests... um, I think I've been trying to help you, my listeners, not um, be be uh, mired in all of the anxiety and uh, the you know sometimes desperation or at least the desperate uh, feelings that you know the world is going crazy. And I am trying to um, help you find other things to uh, think about and that are uplifting, actually. And today is uh, in the same vein. Uh, I have just read a marvelous book written by my guest, Fiona Lewis. It is called Mistakes Were Made, Some in French. And it's a memoir, a very personal memoir. And Fiona, as, we will, as she will tell us, <laughs> um, was born and raised in England. And I thought, even though, yes, this is a promise to talk about more love and more uplifting things like the French, uh, the south of France, the countryside, um, I do want to just spend a few minutes asking Fiona, since she was born and raised in England, how she was affected by what just happened yesterday, um, the Manchester terror attack, the awful Manchester terror attack. So, Fiona, why don't we just dedicate a few minutes to that um, tragedy, which unfortunately is becoming all too common uh, around the world and in England. Well, yes, I'm afraid so, particularly in Europe. And it is, of course, terrorism is a terrible thing because um, it's one of them, or maybe just two people, or just. And so, how do you catch these people, and how do you know where they are? And I, I don't. Um, it is, a, it is a terrible thing. And how do you instill in people or in children the idea that you know the world is full of other people just like them, and to get rid of the hatred and the miscommunication about religion and. Um, well, I'm not even well with ISIS. Of course, it's supposed to be a religious uh, organization, but I don't. I think it's gone way beyond that. I think it's really just about power, um, yeah. and I don't know. I think it's a very difficult thing for governments to deal with, and I think a lot of it has to be covertly done, so that you actually in, infiltrate these groups. I yeah. mean, I don't know what it's. Um, well, do you? I mean, when you heard about this, what was your feeling um, as far as, you know, like, did you feel uh, 
that it hurt you more? First of all, I don't know if you knew it. Did you worry that you might have known someone who was at this concert hall? Well, I, you know, Manchester is in the northern well, midlands of England, so I probably wouldn't have known anyone. But you know that there, there are. It's London is very dangerous too, and and when. Some of the time when I was in London, or when I would go back to visit, there were the IRA bombings, you know, the Irish mm-hmm. bombings, and and it was it was scary. You you tended to go into stores and look around and and then make sure where the exit was and um, and not perhaps not go into very crowded areas because of that, and that only stopped the IRA bombings because actually the women got out on the streets and started protesting to their husbands. Um, and they brought about the end of the bombing. Mm. Um, but it still went on for a lot. You know, there was a lot of bombs in London, a lot of people killed. Well, did you, uh, did you um, speak with anyone there? Or, uh, I actually, uh, this morning, happened to speak with someone whose daughter uh, was on vacation in London, and she got out this morning. She left pretty quickly when all this happened, but she said that everything, you know, that, of course, London went into um, uh, incre- increased, even though it's already been on high alert, increased its security, uh, because there was no telling whether there was going to be another lone terrorist uh, targeting London. Well, that's true, and, of course, when these things happen, you know, uh, other people get ideas and want to do the same, and there is a huge Muslim population in London and has been for a long, long time. Uh, So you you just don't know. uh, It could happen in a mall and could happen in a crowded place. It is scary just going to an airport these days. You know, you tend to sort of run, run for an airport, you know, looking for anyone suspicious. It's not a great way to live your life, but on the other hand... You know, how can you not when you watch the news? Right. Well, you know, one of the reasons why I loved your book, again, it's called Mistakes Were Made, Some in French, a memoir, um, is because I totally related to a lot of the things that you talked about, um, including, of course, England and France. Uh, I lived in, I went to medical school in Belgium, and and I lived in Paris for three and a half years while I was going to medical school. And, uh, and I lived in, in London um, after that to study with uh, Anna Freud at the Hampstead Clinic. Oh, really? Yes. Yes, yes. So when I, whenever there, you know, in, especially in this past uh, year or two, when there have been the attacks in Paris and in France and East and so on, and then and in London, um, I feel uh, particularly attached to these kinds of things, as if it was, and, and I was born and raised in New York, so of course 9/11. But you know, when, yes. when the terrorists hit these targets of places that my heart is in, um, it feels all the more personal and upsetting. Yes, I understand it because when something happens in, say, Turkey, it is you know it is that much farther away. But when Europe, too, I I feel the same thing too about Paris, where I lived there for a while as well, and. You just know you know the names of the streets, so it becomes very personal. Yes. Well, all right. Now let's talk about something else personal and a little less. Of course, I'm sure both of us are sending our uh, condolences and sympathies and wishes for all the families and the, for the victims, the, the yes. families of the victims who were killed and, of course, the victims who are still in hospital, hoping, of course, that they... Right, because uh, the injured, of course, that's, you don't even know how bad the injuries yes. are, which is terrible. Yes. yes. 
So, um, why don't we start with, um, well, let's start with, this book just came out. I do want to tell my listeners this. It just came out. Um, but what, so what made a lot, so a lot of the things you go back, actually, to your childhood, which I love, um, and what made you at this particular moment, or well, I mean, I guess this book has been a number of years in coming, but what made you in these recent years decide to write this very personal book? Well, it, it started because in my late 50s, um, I had a crisis and I, I felt completely lost. I woke up and didn't know who I was supposed to be anymore. I realized that everything that I thought was going to happen to me had happened already. Um, and I thought, well, I have to somehow reinvent myself. And I bought this ruined chateau in France that wasn't very expensive. And I thought, well, that's what I'll do. I'm going to redo this um, house. I'm going to do it up and work with French workmen. And uh, what I didn't realize at the same time that actually I was sort of reinventing myself as well as the house as it went along. I started to write about my childhood and then I started about to write about going to France as a child and going to French university and going out with French boyfriends and suddenly I realized about all the mistakes I'd made with men all, all through my life and with relationships and with my career and what I thought about them now and how I could come to terms with them really. Okay, and let me, can, can, I, can I just, um, I should pause you there for a moment just to tell people, in case you have not um, recognized Fiona Lewis's name, which maybe you were under a rock, <laughs> but she is a British actress and writer. Uh, she it, it has been in numerous films, um, from uh, Roman Polanski's The Vampire Killers, Ken Russell's Listomania, Brian De Palma's The Fury, um, she's also a, a, a writer of a novel called Between Men, and uh, she's written in, for The New Yorker, The Observer, and The L.A. Times. And um, she says she may be the only woman in America who has written for The New Yorker and posed for Playboy. So uh, those are wonderful credits to have, all of them. <laughs> well, well, yes. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, so now you can continue with the story. I just wanted to put it in perspective for, for my listeners. And, and yes, um, you know, the British boyfriends and the French boyfriends, yes, I can relate to all of the above. I actually married an Englishman. So, okay, oh. why don't we... <laughs> so let's... Um, so I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but so why don't you continue where you were? Well, I started to realize that um, part of my unhappiness, I was in a marriage that I'm still in, but at the time I, we were having problems, and um, I realized that I actually had to come to terms with who I was as an older woman, that you can't really, everybody says, well, you've had this fantastic life, movies, and, and I said, well, guess what, how does that relate to today? You know, you just can't rest on your laurels, you can't, you have to deal with who am I now, and whom, what am I going to do for the next 20 years of my life? But by going back and thinking about all these bad relationships, as a, as a girl, an English girl who was insecure when I went to London in the 60s. I'd really actually come, I'd gone to a convent and then in the 50s and early 60s and then I went right to swinging London and the King's Road and it was, well, it was very different and I wasn't, of course, very prepared as, as neither were most of the women I knew for this explosion in London. 
you know, it was in the 60s, it was so different from the 50s, the breakdown of the class barriers in England, and it was the first time it was cool to be working class and important to be young, because before that, no one really cared. And suddenly people were photographers and magazine editors designing clothes, and you could sort of be anything you wanted. But women's lib hadn't really started then, and so what happens when I, I was a teenager, and it was free love, and but basically really it was about free sex. So young girls were actually quite confused in that era mm-hmm. about who they were. I mean, most young girls are looking for romance, but in those days, suddenly everything was wide open and it was all about sex. And there were a lot of women of my age who were quite confused, but they were so we were so busy trying to be groovy that we didn't really confront that. And mm-hmm. and then it sort of went on like that in the seventies. So it was very difficult to have a relationship with a man, and you didn't complain because women hadn't started complaining then. So it was mm-hmm. an interesting time of that switch, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, um, and then I got caught up in, you know, doing movies and trying to be famous or trying to be good, although I wasn't really a very good actress. I never really learned how to act. I just, in those days when you were a model, you could sort of slip into acting in a way that you can't do anymore. And I was sharing an apartment with Jacqueline Bissett. The two of us were penniless models, and then we, she got a little part in a movie, and I got a part in uh, Roman Polanski's The Fearless Vampire Killers, just a small part, um, which was, it was a movie, it was a kind of spoof on horror movies, and he he taught me how to act, he taught me how to throw it away, throw away the lines, and just sort of act normally, instead of overacting. Uh-huh. So I'd suddenly, I, I'd suddenly, I'd sort of become an actress without really knowing what the hell I was doing. Yes, um, and um, maybe um, if you could, you uh, you talk in the book about having had an affair with him, and that must have been yes. an amazing, um, uh, an amazing, well, such such a mixture of feelings when he ultimately married somebody else and then she got killed. Tell, well, tell here's the, here's what happened is that when I first met Roman, he'd actually been living in France and he didn't even speak English very well. But he was he'd just done uh, his movie Repulsion with Catherine Deneuve, um, and I met him because Jackie had had a small part in his movie Cul de Sac, um, and we started going out. He was, um, you know, the interesting thing about Roman is that well, he wasn't. You know, wasn't very good looking. He was tiny, and but he was full of life and energy, and the love of the arts, and extremely bright, and obviously a brilliant filmmaker. So he was very attractive. And but when we started doing the Phyllis Vampire Killers, our romance was was we just really become friends by then. And so he started. He fell in love with Sharon Tate, and we all became very close friends. In fact, the tragedy was that that. When Sharon went back to Los Angeles to when she was very pregnant, um, she had asked me to go with her huh. or to join to join her there, and I was going to be there on the that week of the Manson murders. But fortunately, I got a mo- another movie, and I huh. so I cancelled my trip. So, so that was well, far from the horror of her dying. I mean, I suppose I have to thank somebody for not letting me get on that plane. Yes, isn't that, God, the twists of fate. 
Yes. Well, that's exactly the twist of fate. Someone was looking out for me. Mm-hmm. So anyway, and I, you know, and Roman, we, we remained friends after that. But, of course, this was, for him, this was the end of the world. I remember having lunch with him a little while after that, and he was, and I didn't really know at the time that, you know, he did, he'd um, escaped from the Nazis, and he was living in the streets of Poland because his uh, parents were taken away. And mm-hmm. that he'd been through an enormous amount of hardship. But he said to me then at that time after Sharon was killed that she said, well, they might just as well send me back to Poland. I, mm-hmm. My life is over. So it was, it, was a, it was a terrible time. It was a terrible time. And he, well, so, you know, and he's paid heavily for that. And, and you know, then there was the horror about the young girl. You know, but yeah. I, I do think I do think by now he might have paid for his sins after so many decades. Yes, I know. I feel it seems like you would agree with what I think that he should they should stop giving him so much trouble about coming back to the states. Right. I mean, he it was very hard for him to leave America. I mean, that was where his career was, even though he's done movies since and some great movies like The Piano. But it was extremely hard for him and. Um, and yes, it was the 70s, and there were, you know, drugs and terrible things going on, but the woman uh, that he, you know, he slept with has forgiven him, and I think maybe it's time for America to forgive him. Yeah. And also the fact that the judge at the time was completely biased and corrupt, so that's why he fled the country, because he knew that he had yeah. no chance. Yes, yes. I mean, so- we forgive... Other people yeah. who do worse things, yes. <laughs> I think. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, not, it's not as if he murdered somebody. <laughs> no, he didn't kill anyone, and, and, the, uh, and she's forgiven him. So, you know. I mean, not that we're not, neither one of us, I'm sure, are, are uh, endorsing, um, you know, people. I'm not endorsing what he did. It was a, a stupid and terrible thing to do, and taking advantage of a young girl is always, always right. wrong. Right. But um, at some point, I think you have to say, okay, well, he's paid his dues. Yes, exactly. Well, I don't know if you heard the music, but we do need to take a break right now. We will be right back. Um, okay. My guest is Fiona Lewis, and um, her book is called Mistakes Were Made, Some in French, We will a memoir. We will be back to that in a minute. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787, Hello? and ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the Terrorism Hotline. 
And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol. Let's try that again. Your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, uh, with my guest, Fiona Lewis, who wrote this marvelous book that just came out, uh, women especially will <laughs> can relate, although I'm sure men will find it interesting as well, but it's called Mistakes Were Made, Some in French. And I want to ask you about um, your very, <laughs> very colorful uh, childhood with a sister who was at one time diagnosed schizophrenic um, and who, well, I'll let you tell the story, and a brother who was also competing for attention and how um, these early years, when, you, when your family would go to France um, for summer vacation, how that really became, I mean, this is what I, how I interpreted this, that, um, that your desire to build this house, your sort of obsession, as you admit, to build this house in France was really related to wanting to find the same um, days, to return to those days of comfort and, and joy and, um, and escape that France meant for you during your childhood. So could you tell us about all of that? Yes. Um, when I was young, uh, I, obviously I was at 10 years old. I hadn't really been anywhere, uh, as one hasn't as a child. And uh, we started having, taking our holidays um, in the south of France, in Saint-Tropez, when Saint-Tropez really was nothing then, it was a beach with a few umbrellas, but it wasn't a fashionable resort. And we would drive down you know, with the family down through France. And I had never really spent a summer in, well, the, the weather in England, as everybody knows, isn't great. The idea of sitting in a place with hot sun and beautiful and food and the, the, the Mediterranean sparkling it was a complete eye-opener to me. I realized that there was actually a life beyond, well, the English countryside and all I, and rain, which is all I can remember when I was that age. And this was a real eye-opener to me, the, everything in France that one is attracted to, the, the food, the language, um, the people, and also the women seemed to be so much more attractive, and they had great fashion sense, little shorts and ballet slippers and things I'd never seen in soggy old Essex where I'd come <laughs> from. And it really was a reawakening, and I couldn't wait to get back to France again. In fact, uh, my father, who also was a Francophile, sent me to university in Grenoble, which is a, a town at the foot of the French Alps, to learn to speak French, uh, which I did not quite in the way he imagined by <laughs> going to school every day, but by getting a French boyfriend. <laughs> um, and my first love. So there was that in France, and then 
anyway, and then I went to Paris. So there was a lot of French in my childhood. And when one looks back at one's childhood, of course, the innocent days when you're not really thinking about anything except what's happening right now, mm-hmm. but being in the present, which, of course, is impossible as you grow older, mm-hmm. everything seems so rosy and so beautiful and just the smells of France, the time and and. I couldn't, somehow when I got into my 50s, I thought I have to get back there. I have to get back to France, which, um, and just the memory of such happiness. And so that's when I decided to look for somewhere to buy. Obviously not too expensive, but, and and then what I found was this wreck of a chateau. And I thought, this is it, I'm going to reinvent myself. So that was the that was the pull for France. And also I spoke French, so it was, well, I couldn't possibly have built this house without speaking French because none of the French workmen spoke English. But, yeah. but the French language also had a great um, appeal to me. There was something so romantic about it. So anyway, that was, that was really why I was just, had this longing for France. And I think a lot of women even though they never went to France when they were younger, there is something very attractive about the French lifestyle. The, you know, the laissez-faire, the, the, the food, the marketplaces outside, um, that, that, that attraction to, the, to a way of life, which, of course, is why you can't get anything done in France, but that's really why, why, what attracts us to go there in the first place. Yes, absolutely. Um, and so... Do you, so whatever, I, I don't, I know, I don't want to give away, I, I'm sure you don't want to give away the end of the book, but, um, well, I don't know if you want to talk about this, but do, what, what has become, do you still have the chateau? I still have the chateau, and I'm still working on areas of it, obviously. Oh. <laughs> it's never quite, fit. no, it's finished, but you know, the, then there's always the falling down barn and the well that doesn't work and things like that. So when uh, I go, oh, which I'm... That's sorry. lovely. I, I, I didn't know because um, I couldn't tell from, you know, how it ended. I didn't know whether you still had it or whether by now you would have... So that's wonderful. Okay. <laughs> I, think, I think my husband is not so keen on having it, but I, but I, I make him go there because it's good for him. <laughs> it makes him, you know, everything calm down. He forgets about work and... and um, and and also it is it is good to sort of broaden your horizons and not just think about well you know just think about what we think about in America which is work and making money yes exactly uh, exactly and sometimes you have have to force yourself to say no I'm actually going to sit in the countryside and maybe read a book <laughs> yeah um, and <clears throat> uh, that but, is yes. one of the the things that the fr- you know. I mean, there's such a contrast, um, as you can, as as you explain, and as you certainly know, um, between between our focus here uh, on work and money and and ambition, which is it's all very well and good to have ambition, but but the French, there's nothing like um, stopping for uh, to, you know appreciating uh, everything that you eat. And uh, not just kind of rushing through going to McDonald's, um, and just appreciating art more, and appreciating uh, nature more. I, I mean, it is kind of sad that uh, we don't have more of that kind of a life in America. 
Well, yes, I think, you know, the, but the tra- traditions in America are about, you know, gung-ho, getting ahead. And, um, and in France, the workman always used to say to me, um, we work to live, we don't live to work, which, of course, was <laughs> a little mm-hmm. more true than I was hoping because the long, after the two-and-a-half-hour lunch, sometimes they didn't come back at all. <laughs> um, yeah, but there is that there is that 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 joie de vivre, which means that you have to really appreciate life, and even especially people in villages who have no money. They every lunchtime they sit up their little table with the little flowers, and they sit down, and they lunch is a very important meal, and the husband comes home, and um, and it's it's serious. It's serious. Eating is a serious business, which is when you're there, you appreciate it enormously. Every village has outdoor markets with fresh little people have like three little lettuces on a table to sell but they're all very fresh and organic and and so you do you do appreciate the smaller things in life which is very hard to do nowadays we're blasted with information 24 hours a day and my god you know if you haven't got done the in instagram you feel guilty and all those things that and what does it mean in the end i don't know um it's not that it's you're right. It's not that it's wrong to want to be successful and make money, but I think if you have to wait till you're in your seventies to realize what is life about, then it then it is a bit too late. I think mm-hmm. if you could just force yourself to smell the roses. Well, um, I do want to talk about that—the things that you learned and so on in in regard to uh, you know. Um, getting older and, and women, especially <laughs> women getting older and all of that. But um, before we get to that, um, tell us about the, the different, um, you know, some of the things that you learned, some of the differences and the interesting things that you learned in terms of your romantic relationships. Well, you know, what I learned rather late, I'm afraid, is that I grew up in a very English family where in those days, especially in those days, you weren't, as a girl, you weren't really told if you were pretty or smart. You were really just supposed to get on with it. Mm-hmm. And I think the, sh- the shame of that is that I didn't have much self-confidence in myself so that I was always looking to get it from men. And, of course, that's a terrible mistake because if you, the only way to really have a good relationship, I think, now with a man is if you don't need them in that mm-hmm. way to validate who you are, because if you're looking for a man to validate your life, you're not going to be very happy. You have to somehow, I don't know how you can tell parents where you must tell your daughters that they're smart and attractive, and it's it's just such an important thing that they're, they're worth, they're not just an extension of the mother, they are their own separate being. I, I mean, I can't, I can't expect my mother to have done that because, you know, this was the 50s and you know, I mean, I'm not sure what she got from her mother. So, you know, how, how far back does the blame go? Uh-huh. And and of course, I I forgave her. She was just, you know, with three children trying to get get it all together. But it is a thing that I think is very important for women to have the self esteem. And I I, I I don't know how you get it except except really from maybe your family and friends, and not always from a man because you'll usually choose the wrong man if you do that. And yeah. I chose a lot of wrong men looking for, you know, looking to be liked and be admired and 
Did they think I was pretty? Did they think I was cool? And instead of saying to myself, well, what do I think about them? Yes. Which I never, which I never asked myself. I was just reacting to, to their affection. So I, I, mean, I relied on it way too much. And so, so that is a, yes. a lesson to be learned, I think, you know, whatever age you are. Yes. So what are some of the mistakes, some, of, some examples of relationships where you learned, uh, you, looking back, as you were saying at the beginning, that you learned uh, about the mistakes that you made? Well, um, I, I had this relationship with um, a man, an English man, who was the, an earl, who was a cousin of the queen, and exactly that, I, he owned a big stately home, a huge home with thousands of acres, and he was young and cool because it was the early 70s, and he was a photographer and very attractive and had beautiful manners. And, um, but I was so overwhelmed by how he lived and his money and the marble pillars and hallway and ballrooms and all that sort of thing, that I basically became uh, this, this child. I couldn't, uh, I couldn't cope with that. I couldn't even talk back to him. And so I, because I, I had no feelings about who I was, I automatically presumed that because I was what they call in England a commoner, which means a normal person, mm-hmm. that he would never really take me seriously. And because I felt that about myself, in the end, he didn't. Mm-hmm. If I'd been... I remember that a friend of his, Bob Parkins, who I don't know if you remember, but she was an actress, an American actress, and she had, and I was so impressed with her because she came to the countryside for a weekend and and she was completely secure in who she was and she sort of bossed these young English lords around and of course <laughs> they loved it and, and I'm going, oh my God, this is, I, gosh, what mileage she's getting out of that and why can't I be more like that? But, but she was just sure of herself and she was an actress and she had money and, and who are these people with this big house? And it was just, it was a good lesson to learn of how women can, it was my first example I think of women's liberation was Barbara Parkins. <laughs> So uh, uh-huh. I have to thank her for that. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, yes, this is all <laughs> tell, so true. What about the first boyfriend who you mentioned um, in France? Oh, the first, the first boyfriend, Michelle, um, well, I felt I was only 16 and a half, so I fell hopelessly in love with him. Um, he was a little bit older than me, and what did I know? I knew nothing at all, and, and I didn't speak French very well, even though I was learning it with him. And unfortunately, uh, I got pregnant, which was a, a complete tragedy at, at that age. I was very young. I couldn't possibly tell my parents, and I had to have an abortion, which was, which was extremely um, traumatic at that age. Um, and I'm not sure what lessons I learned from it, except that, you know, that I, I, I don't, you know, to say what lessons I learned at 16 and a half, I, I don't know. It's just that, in fact, I don't think right then I learned much, except that I had to keep sort of moving forward. And being English, I didn't really, that's one of the points of the book, is a lot of the times I didn't really confront the problems then ever. And there certainly wasn't anyone to talk to. I mean, in those days, you couldn't tell your parents. And even if somebody 
you know, even if somebody sort of smacked you around, there was no one to complain to. It just, mm. it just wasn't done. You just had to keep going and move on. And that was very much the sign of the times that for women, you just kept moving on. And so you didn't really learn a lot. It was only later when I came to America that I could actually reflect a little bit more about my life. And, and really, it took me... It took me far too long to come to terms with everything into my, my late 50s, which is not, not advisable if you're a woman. It would be good to get a, a few things sorted out. I never went to, uh, I mean, I went once to see a psychiatrist, but I didn't, it wasn't a very good experience. And, of course, it was, I didn't, if you're English, it wasn't something you did very easily, to, is talk about yourself. Because I'd, I'd never talked about myself when I was younger. It wasn't encouraged. It was considered very self-indulgent. So I think it took me most of, a lot of my life to realize um, what my life had been. Uh, up until then, I was just, I guess, kept going. So you, I didn't learn from my mistakes until much later. And, and thankfully, because I, I had a good marriage with somebody who was willing to really um, appreciate me for who I was. And even even though I, you know, I was not somebody, I was usually the kind of person who would run away to get, to get away from things. He was a man who wasn't having any of that, and he was very direct and very open and very good for somebody like me who wasn't used to talking about things. So I was lucky. I found somebody who liked me despite myself. And... Um, and I hope that I hope hope other people get get that lucky. Well, well, um, yes. I was going to say how. I mean, do you think that there was nothing by the time that you met him? Um, do you think that there was nothing that had changed that made? I mean, how do how do you think that you were able to? Um, you're married for over twenty years, right? Oh yes, well we're now we've been together for thirty years. So well, 30 it's obviously years. For, so in Hollywood I think we're almost legendary. Yes, okay, yes, thirty years, right. So so how how would you say that you rec oh my goodness, here's the music game. Well, we'll leave this as a cliffhanger. I wanna know how you either recognize that this was a man who was different from all the rest and this was a relationship that was different, or what you think maybe changed in you that he was able to um, that you were able to attract someone who really wanted something more permanent. We will have the answer to that when we come back. My guest is Fiona Lewis. Her book is called Mistakes Were Made, Some in French, a Memoir. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787, and ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. 
Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking with Fiona Lewis about her new book called Mistakes Were Made, Some in French. Marvelous new book. (laughs) And before the break, um, I was starting to ask her about how, how she was different and or her husband was different, like how this man, to whom she's been married for about 30 years, uh, how he was different from all of the other, or how the relationship became different from all of the other relationships she had had before. Well, um, before I married my present husband, I was married to a man who was also um, rather reserved, very much in an English way, the kind of man I was attracted to. Um, nicely mannered, polite, and slightly reserved. And then my husband came along, and he was exactly the opposite of that. And in the beginning, I wasn't attracted to him because he said exactly what he thought, and he told me exactly what he thought. In fact, when we first, our first dinner, he said, um, well, you know, I'm not really attracted to women like you, he said, even though you're very attractive. I said, you're not my type at all. I said, well, you're not my type either, so um, what are we even doing here? So, but then it, but then we did run into each other later, and um, he pointed out that my English manners were really a way of avoiding the truth, avoiding mm-hmm. what I was really meaning about people. I would go out of my way to be nice to people I didn't even like because I was overcompensating mm-hmm. being so English, and and he encouraged me to tell the truth not only about everything I was feeling, which of course was an anathema to me. Um, but being Jewish, he very much had that that way of everything was spoken, everything, every thought in his head. Um, in fact, I used to say to him, you know, perhaps a little less honestly would be good. <laughs> but um, it, the, what it did is it made drew me out into confronting things. That, in other words, when, whenever I'd had a bad relationship, I would just have an argument and then I would just run away and, and just say, okay, it's over, you know, next, without... Of course, when that happens, you take all those problems that are yourself with you, and then they just surface again with the next man. Mm-hmm. And I never really looked at what I was doing, and I was very overly sensitive to criticism, because, especially in my writing, and without looking at that perhaps there was something I was doing that I could change to make it better. And he pointed this out, and it was very difficult in the beginning, but... I really did begin to grow as a person and feel that I was more of a woman because at the same time he wasn't just critical, he was also very affectionate and loving. So I got both those sides and I begin, began to feel like a real woman uh, as opposed to just pretending to be something else for a man uh, or pretending to be what they wanted me to be. Mm-hmm. So 
it was the first time really that I could actually be myself and uh, it was quite quite shocking and of course a lot of the time I I would sort of regress and say I, I, I'm leaving whenever we had an argument and he just was calmly wouldn't put up with it so I was very lucky to find a man who saw through my pretense of whatever I thought I was to what he saw as the woman I really was and I think it's well that's I was very lucky to find someone like that. I I would not have chosen him as a type, really. I wouldn't have been attracted to him initially. He was far too uh, brusque and, and, you know, he, he's not, well, I think he's adorable looking, but he's not a classic handsome man. It's not, you know, but, but um, that's another thing that's interesting about who, as you get older, you're not necessarily attracted to what people think is good looking or attractive or and he was also you, very clever yeah because because just you, realize, be, you you realize that those there are more important things right and also what you realize is that when you're actually in love with somebody that um they they are the best looking man you know and that it's why people get tired of people in relationships and this goes for men too i think is that they get the beautiful blonde and then you know they get sort of after three weeks they wanted the different one because they never really chose them for the right reason anyway if you choose a person because of their looks it's um in the end you're just having breakfast with them and so it doesn't really the looks don't don't last what are you going to talk about all day Mm-hmm. What are you going to say to each other all day? Because basically, that's what it's about in the end, having breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And you have to, have, you have to be with a man who's kind, who's understanding, and, um, and who has a sense of humor. I must say that. It does help. Yeah. And so, um, so, so slowly, we, we had this wonderful relationship, which even though I had a midlife crisis, um, I, and when I went to France to buy the ruined chateau. It really was uh, an escape for myself, and I realized that I had to, and that's all it was. It was an escape. Once again, I was running away, and I had to look back over my life and and come to terms with who I was and who I was going to be for however long I'm going to live now, you know, maybe 15 years. I mean, that's who I am, and I better just, you know, try and appreciate the small moments and what I've got as opposed to, you know, we're all bad at this, but we all concentrate on what we don't have, especially now with things like Instagram and Facebook where everybody's life looks better than ours, which they're not, of course. Yeah, and, yeah. and everybody's jealous of everybody else and you just really have to say, well, but what do I have? Not what don't I have, you know. Yeah. And I, I did learn that. Yes, absolutely. Um... And, you know, this it is, um, as you were st- starting to say before, it is harder for women um, to, uh, especially, I mean, you know, also what you had, had said, like, when being an actress, being a model, being an actress, and looking for validation from the outside, and then um, not doing that, you know, I just wanted to, I wanted to mention something. Your, your husband, who we've been talking about, is Art Linson, who is an American film producer, director, and screenwriter. Very accomplished. Yes. And um, when you, um, did you uh, want him to put you in his plays? I mean, in his, in his um, whatever he was producing? 
Well, when I when I met him, I had actually stopped acting because um, I was never really suited to acting, even though I did act. And I wanted to be badly wanted to be a writer, and I started writing for the Los Angeles Times, and I'd written a couple of screenplays. So when we first met, it was under the pretenses of, well, he's a producer, I'm a screenwriter, I'm going to try and sell him some ideas. Mm. And we, we had lunch for a long time on the pretense of this, even though both of us knew we were very attracted to each other. But at the time, I was married. Well, I was, I was separated, and he was married. So this was very tricky ground. He was been married for a long time. I just got separated. So neither of us... Um, we were both aware that this was tricky ground and we didn't really want to break, I didn't want to break up his marriage. Um, I certainly didn't want that, any of that kind of responsibility. So we, for a year, we just had lunch. And then, obviously, and then, obviously, we weren't going to work together on any projects and, you know, by then we'd fallen in love. But it was a long, long courtship, which, of course, doesn't happen very often these days. It just so happened that we were... You know, well, I was I wasn't that unavailable, but he was definitely unavailable. So it was a different circumstance. Um, and I no, I didn't want to be an actress anymore. I wanted to be a writer, and I was trying to write screenplays. Um, and um, soon after that, I did write my first book, um, which was a while ago. So, it, so it, I guess it was like an old-fashioned courtship that doesn't couldn't possibly exist anymore, where you actually get to know someone for a long time before you sleep together, which is unheard of. But in a way, it helped our relationship enormously because I was, he had become a friend first. Mm-hmm. And, and, yes. and how, how do you ever do that today? Yes, and when, when you were talking earlier about, um, you know, the 70s in London and uh, the 60s and, um, you know, about how, uh, how women were trying to seem cool and people were having sex and um, not really relationships, you know, one sex partner after another, all that. You know, that in, a, in a slightly different format, a slightly different iteration, you know, a different decade, this is going on today. And women are just as unhappy and struggling um, with trying to pretend that they can have sex like men and not really get involved and get hurt and just move on to the next one. Because And, and I attribute it to the fact that there are so many divorces um, that uh, that people are afraid to be really intimate with someone and and well, get they married could and so be because I think it's impossible to be intimate with someone if, if you have if you for, here's here's the thing the difference I think between men and women first of all women are the one who want to ha- who have to have the children so by nature they're different from men and also. Women, just like I felt in the 60s and 70s, if you have a one-night stand and you're cool and, you know, hey, what the hell, the the playing field's level now, we're all equal. Um, but then, of course, women do want to get flowers the next day or, or at least a phone call. I mean, yes. you're lucky if you get that. And, of course, you get upset when you don't. And and so women, by nature, are different beings than men. Men, yes. I think, will originally brought into the world to spread the seed that's what they do and but women weren't and so whether you're a career woman or not inherently in your being you are somebody who wants a relationship um i think men get to that stage much later in life but and so i think it makes women extremely 
extremely unhappy to just have uh, one night stand. Yes, and, I, and I, I don't think it works, but you know it's inevitable because you're attracted to somebody who had a few drinks. But in the end, it doesn't work, and I don't, I don't know anybody it's worked for. Yes. I really don't. Yes, yes. So, so women need relationships, and that's, that's the basic problem. Men don't really need relationships. Um, some want them, but they don't. And so all I can say to women is, whatever you do, don't bring up the word relationship. <laughs> if, if, you're going yes. to go, if you're going to try and attract a man, at least play the game a little bit, you know, because it, it is a game, and pretend you're not interested or pretend, you know, you're, it's it, you know it's the old thing the chase women do like to chase men though do like to chase women and it, it's inherent so let them chase you yes um, exactly I under, it's difficult though I mean it's easy for me to say I'm old but um, <laughs> I wouldn't say <laughs> I wouldn't say that that's old but yes I know absolutely and it's so sad that women are still you know are, are in there trying to pretend that they're cool and that this doesn't bother them and all that. They're really um, losing a lot because each failed, each time the man doesn't call or doesn't send flowers or doesn't, you know, or shows that this was really just nothing to him, it, it really leaves a scar on the woman. What, you know, whether it's in the 60s and the 70s. painful for women. And what I say to young women now is the time to play hard to get is when you, when you have slept with them because you can't avoid sleeping with them, but you can play hard to get afterwards. I mean, at least if you get a chance to, then because most men will, will at least, you know, want to see you two or three times and that's when, because you can't play hard to get before. Nobody can do that anymore. Everybody, you know, women have sexual desires just like men. But, um, but you do have to play hard to get. It's, um, it's not cool otherwise. It's not, it doesn't make you happy. Well, all right. I, want, I know we're coming down to the end, so I want to make sure that um, we can tell people where to buy the book. And I also wanted to give out the website address of your uh, blog, which is called right. uh, Fiona's frenchchateau.com so that's, that's www.fionas f-i-o-n-a-s french chateau c-h-a-t-e-a-u dot com and it's got all kinds of treasures there in the book again it's called Mistakes Were Made Some in French and of course uh, they can get it from Amazon and Barnes and Noble or, and is there anything particular any particular place that you would like people to go no I think that's that, that's really the easiest place to get it Okay. Well, I recommend it. You've heard, um, hopefully this has been titillating enough for you to run right out. (laughs) Or else go to your computer and order it. Well, thank you so much, Fiona. This has been um, really charming and just as charming as your... As your whole book, so I really, I really did enjoy it from a lot of different perspectives. Um, so I well, heart, heartily recommend it. Well, thank you so much, and it has been lovely talking to you. Okay, and thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. 